Hello everyone and welcome to our isolation insight on the Scottish elections. Um, we're all aware there are lots of elections taking place over the next 10 days or so and with many apologies to my Welsh colleagues and those of you that are fixated on the red wall, I think it's fair to say that the Scottish elections are by far the most consequential of the set of elections um, for the future of the United Kingdom. The SNP have been in government in Scotland for 14 years, but there's nothing to suggest that that's not going to continue. And so there's a fascinating um, discussion to be had about why that's the case. Um, I have with me four of the best people possible to tell us all about this, and I'm really excited to hear what they've got to say. Um, so we have Professor Elsa Henderson, um, who is the Principal Investigator for the Scottish Election Study, and I'm hoping that we'll be able to get some links to some of the um, fascinating work that's been coming out of the Scottish Election Study. I love the um, interactive story on the website in particular. We have Professor John Curtis, who is a senior fellow at the UK and a Change in Europe and at the University of Strathclyde. We have Kenny Farquharson from the Times and Professor Nicola McEwen, who is the co-director of the Centre on Constitutional Change and also a senior fellow at UK in a Changing Europe. As you can imagine, for people working on elections at the moment, this is an incredibly busy time. And to make life even more busy, um, Elsa also released a book just a couple of weeks ago, as, as if the Scottish election period wasn't busy enough. Um, so unfortunately, she, she does have to leave us at one. And so I'm going to come to you first to kick us off in, in our discussion. We will, we will have an, a chat amongst ourselves for about 20 minutes, and then I'll come to the questions on the Slido. It does make my life a little bit easier if you can vote for the questions you would like me to ask. Even with that system in place, there's no guarantee I'll get through them all, but I'll, I'll do my best to put your questions to the panel once we've had a chance to hear from them. So Elsa, coming to you, as I just said, there's this um, wonderful interactive story about the four tribes in Scotland, which has been created by the kind of interaction of the two referendums, the, the 2014 independence referendum and the Brexit referendum. And I think this brings home to us just how many national elections the voters in Scotland have faced over the last seven years. Um, but yet the SNP seemed to have dominated all of them. Um, and I wondered if you can, talk us through what explains that success. I mean, it's quite rare for a single party to dominate all elections in that way. And I wondered if if you could tell us a little bit about why. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So the th um, thanks for that. And thanks for the the invitation to be here today. And I'm and, and very sorry to have to, to dash out before it, it reaches its conclusion. Um, I think the short answer could be that they they do better than average against opponents who are who are doing not all that well. Um, but I think that kind of slightly pat answer, that kind of flatness of the prevailing countryside answer, is, is maybe a bit uncharitable. And I and I think I think three things are are relevant. The first is leadership. So Nicola Sturgeon's personal favorability ratings far outstrip anyone else's, and, and they have for a very long time. They they are. Um, they have been net positive since about November 2019, and if we look not just at general favorability, but also um, how well she is perceived to have handled coronavirus, those numbers again are very strong, very positive, and around two thirds have a positive 
positive view of her for that. So, so she is streets ahead of any other party leader. Um, Douglas Ross is polling less well than, than Ruth Davidson did. Servation still asks about Ruth Davidson. He's still polling less well than, than she is at the moment. Uh, Anna Sarwar is polling better than, than Richard Leonard. Sarwar is the only leader with a net, uh, the only unionist leader with a net positive rating, but his net positive rating is about plus three with about 66% saying they, they don't know, they have no opinion of his leadership. So she straights ahead. The other parties, though, however good or bad they're polling, it doesn't really seem to be making much of a difference in terms of uh, in terms of party support. So the other parties are, are insulated a bit from the the polling of of their of their leadership. So no ha no other leader comes close. Her personal handling of of COVID seems to be helping here. I think the other part of the reason is about competence. It's quite common to hear in voting studies that if you're if you're able to if you're perceived to to handle the the management of the economy, uh, then you are then you are in a very favorable position. And and the Scottish kind of variation of that is not that the economy is the only thing that matters, but because of the economic competence of the Scottish Parliament until recently, it was standing up for Scotland. So the party that is best able to say that it stands up for Scotland. In the minds of the voters, they they have a considerable advantage going into an election, but that's not even the whole story. What we know from the polling in 2016 for the Scottish election study is that the SNP outpolled every other party on every policy issue. So they're not just seen to be more competent in terms of standing up for Scotland, but more competent in terms of handling of health, education, the economy, um, tackling inequality, and so on. Now, pollsters ask about competence in two different ways. They ask about it in terms of uh, forced choice, which single party is best able to handle a policy area. And they also ask separate evaluations. And the forced choice answers always show that the SNP is, again, as in 2016, ahead on everything. But however interesting that is, I think the separate evaluations are more interesting because they tell you how well the SNP is actually doing and also who's who's closer, who's far behind. Because, of course, you can be perceived to be best and still, you know, just the best of a bad bunch. You don't necessarily need to be doing well. And in terms of economic competence, we know that over half trust the SNP, regardless of the policy area that's that's mentioned. And their lowest rating is still higher than the highest rating given for any other party. If you look at gaps, they're a bit more vulnerable on education. There's a four point gap over labor in the handling of education. There's a seven point gap over labor in terms of the handling of inequality. But the competence measures, no matter how you ask, suggests that the SNP is, is perceived by the electorate to be more competent. And that is particularly true in terms of their handling of coronavirus, where the gap is the widest as it is for standing up for Scotland. The other thing that's worth noting is that those separate evaluations help you to understand what's going on with the unionist parties. And it used to be the case that labor was second on everything except for the economy. But what we're seeing now in those separate evaluations is that Labour are also still second uh, on, on the economy. And the Conservatives have dropped from their second place position on the economy down to third. And it looks like they're being punished um, in terms of their perceived handling of the economy when it relates to jobs, but also in terms of living standards. So those separate evaluations help to explain why the SNP is doing so well, but also some of the churn that's happening 
in the independence parties. And just the very last thing, I think, as Paula mentioned, that this all relates to the, to the four tribes. Now, partly the SNP does well on the constitutional issue because there are, um, there are three unionist parties and one big pro-independence party. And that doesn't help you very much in a referendum, but it certainly does help you with, a, with, a refer with an election. But I think in terms of those four tribes, I think there's three things going on. I think each of the parties have their natural constituencies within those tribes. I think within those tribes, they face different levels of competition. And each of the parties also vary in the extent to which they can break out from their natural tribe or the natural constituency. And so it's true if we're looking not just at yes leavers and yes remainers, no leavers and no remainers, um, but even just a simpler way of looking at it. Servation asks um, it, when it has its cross tabs, this is the very last point I'll make, it has um, the intensity of your independence preferences. And it shows the asymmetry in how the constitution is explaining the way that, 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 people, are, that people are voting. If you look at the conservatives, they're getting around 43% from those who are strongly opposed to independence. But if you move to those who are moderately opposed to independence, their support plummets to about 8%. Whereas if you look at the SNP, if you're looking at people strongly supportive of independence, they're getting about 80% of the strong supporters, still 60% of the moderate supporters, just shy of 40% of those who are neutral on the issue of independence. And they're getting about, they're getting about one in five support from those who are moderately opposed to independence. So they're able to break out of their natural constituency or tribe better than the others. And I, and I don't think that's separate from leadership and competence. I think that helps to explain why they're able to break out. People are supportive and favorable of Nicola Sturgeon. They think she, she and the party have done a good job of coronavirus. And I think uh, they're perceived to be competent in terms of their handling of, of the various policy issues facing the electorate. Thank you. And that gives us a really good point for the question that I was now going to pose uh, to John. Um, I've, I've been reading this morning your latest piece on um, identity and values in Scotland, the latest piece on, on uh, what Scotland thinks, which is fascinating about how the two referendums have interacted. And particularly, I think, the impact of the Brexit referendum on how all this has has changed and shifted um, in Scotland. So I wonder if you could talk us through a little bit there what's actually happened. I think Elsa started that conversation for us, but also I'm interested in whether you think that is a kind of permanent realignment or new alignment, or whether it's more of a short-term change that as, as Brexit sort of gradually disappears behind us, people will move back to their old positions. Um, okay. Um, well, I mean, to tell this story, we have to go back to the 2014 independence referendum, which some people listening may remember we had an endless argument about whether or not an independent Scotland would or would not be able to be a continuing member of the European Union. And the Scottish government said it would, and the UK government said it wouldn't. And President Barroso was inclined to make Delphic remarks that were closer to the views of the UK government than those of the Scottish government. But occasionally politicians completely miss their target. And that was a debate that completely missed its target because uh, 
basically there was very little relationship between whether or not people voted yes or no and their attitudes towards Europe. Indeed, we can go forward to the 2016 Brexit referendum. And again, we find that yes, Scotland voted by roughly two to one in favor of um, remaining, but it was two thirds of remain voters and uh, of yes voters and two thirds of no voters. So even at that point, this was a cross-cutting issue. But um, what you rapidly discovered in the polling that was going on even in the autumn of 2016 is that people were beginning to reshape their attitudes towards independence in the wake of uh, how they voted in the EU referendum. So some people, as nationalists had anticipated, who had voted no and remained, started switching to yes. But equally, there were other people who originally who voted yes and voted leave who switched to no. I, I remember once um, talking about this a long time ago on you know, Kay Adams Radio Scotland morning programme and kind of saying, well, look, you know, you know, yeah, sure, level of support for independence has gone up, but things are going on. And 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 to my uh, my, my great joy, up popped a lady from Aberdeenshire, which of course, as we know, is leave country by Scottish standards, who said, you know, I've both been in favour of independence all my life, voted for the SNP. But now that the UK has got the sense to get out of the European Union, you know, never any points in being in hock to the uh, uh, to Brussels. Uh, you know, I've changed my mind, and I went, Hallelujah! You know, there's a voter out there who just demonstrates that sometimes the statistics in polls do actually tell you something. And you know, and the truth is that ever since then there has been a relationship between attitudes towards EU and independence support, the rise in support and independence that all the polls registered in 2019 occurred entirely amongst Remain voters. It was still falling amongst Leave voters. So it's therefore very difficult to avoid the conclusion that it's the pursuit of Brexit that got us to the point of around 50-50, although it seems to have slipped a bit uh, uh, most recently. Um, uh, and it's also true that Brexit uh, reshaped the character support for the party, some of which else has already referred to. So uh, there, there is still that great journalistic myth out there that says the reason why the SNP lost so much ground in 2017 was because they called for Indiref 2 back in March. Well, just think about it. Now, even if you thought that was a wee bit premature, are you going to go wandering off voting for the Tories because you think that maybe uh, Nicola Sturgeon should have waited for a year or two? It, no, it does rather lose the uh, ring of credibility. And in fact, I mean, it's not only the work we've done on Scottish Social Attitudes, so also the British election, election study team in their electoral dynamics books show quite clearly, no, the SNP's problem is that they lose, lost a barrel load of votes amongst Leave voters. Thus, Alex Salmon got turfed out. Thus, Angus Robertson got turfed out. Um, and that's still with us. It's still the case in the in the in the polls for this campaign that the SNP is roughly twice as popular amongst Remain voters as amongst Leave voters. Its vote still more variegated than that of you know the Conservatives south of the border on the Brexit divide. But there is now a division in a way that there wasn't five years ago. Um, and that's also then uh, had other knock-on consequences, which you've referred to, Paula, in in the rather academic, more academic paper released, which is that well. One of the things that we know about attitudes towards the EU across um, the UK as a whole 
is that it tends to be a division between social liberals and social conservatives, between those who on the one hand say uh, that, you know, uh, have what mores people follow is up to them, what moral code they follow is up to them. I'm quite happy about immigration, love living in London, this is fantastic multicultural city, versus those who say, no, in order to maintain adequate social cohesion in society, a society does need to impose its own moral code. It is important that people acknowledge the same sense of identity and flags, etc. Um, and people who are liberals voted for the uh, EU and uh, people who are conservatives voted for um, voted uh, for Brexit. Um, well, you know, unsurprising, what we then also discovered, we kind of tracked through over time um, the extent to which um, social liberals and social conservatives differ in their attitudes towards independence. What you discover, if you go back 10 years ago, no difference. But now, in the wake of Brexit, and we do some analysis that shows it looks as though it really is that Brexit has done it, you now discover that support for independence is about 20 points higher amongst social liberals and amongst social conservatives. One of the interesting consequences, therefore, of which is that, you know, there are some on the unionist side who still are inclined to say, you know, those that nationalism is all the same. And at the end of the day, you know, this is a potentially rather nasty, narrow force. Well, actually, interestingly, in the wake of Brexit, the character support for the SNP and the character support for independence is actually now rather closer, albeit it's by no means as close as perhaps as sometimes is claimed, but is rather closer to the relatively open, welcome and inclusive uh, set of values that Nicola Sturgeon claims that it is. So uh, thanks to Brexit, Nicola Sturgeon has also got an electorate which she perhaps will now find rather more congenial than perhaps was the one that the, the SNP had 10 years ago. Well, I'll put my, my webcam back up. Thank you. And I think that moves us into um, some new territory that might be unusual, actually, for some, of, for some of the audience watching from afar. So, Kenny, if I can come to you, we haven't really touched. We've talked a lot about the SNP, haven't really um, talked at all so far um, about the, the new nationalist party, ALBA, although I think John kind of touched on it a little bit there about the, the kinds of people that were that, that left the SNP as, as it kind of connected with this different group of voters. But the, the thing that's perhaps surprised people most of all is we've now got this new word. So we've got lots of new words coming out of um, politics at the moment. And this one's super majority, which seems to have kind of decided to raise its head during this campaign. Can you perhaps talk us through, A, what the idea of a supermajority is? Because I think for, for some of us used to dealing with UK politics and first past the post systems, that does doesn't make, we might describe what Boris Johnson has as a supermajority, and I don't think that's quite the same meaning. Um, and secondly, the impact that you think that new, that new party has had um, on the campaign and, and the outcome. Thanks, Paula. Um, there's no doubt really that the, the, the return of Alex Salmond is the, is, the, is the most compelling human story in this election. And it's also true that the creation of Alba has, it has serious implications for Scottish nationalism, the nationalist uh, movement, if you like. And, and it makes it harder for the SNP to be in sole control of the narrative about independence as it has them in the past. I'll give you an example of that. You know, you, you can see in a future 
independence referendum. It being a little bit like what we saw in the Brexit referendum, where you had two rival leave campaigns, each with their own leaders, their own emphasis, their own narratives, and, and each claiming to be the authentic voice of, of the, the, the leave movement. And, and you can see this potentially happening in Scotland too, where you're gonna have a, a tussle, you're now gonna have a tussle over who is the authentic voice of, of, of Scottish nationalism. Um, but Paul, I just come, come to come to, to, to your specific point on supermajority, I think the, 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 the issue that we have to face here is that um, um, there's an issue about democracy here. Um, and we'll find out soon enough if Alba can elect any MSPs. I know, I know I've been reading what John's been saying on this and I know there's some skepticism about whether or not it will uh, ultimately actually um, produce any MSPs. But I think even if it doesn't do particularly well, Alba is going to have an impact um, because it's drawn attention to loopholes in the Holyrood electoral system. And I think it's fair to say Scottish democracy is on trial in this election uh, in a way that perhaps it hasn't been before and the result will be scrutinized uh, like never before. And people will be watching, I think, to see if the electoral system has passed or failed a very basic democratic test. And that test is whether or not the parliament ultimately, ultimately reflects the political complexion of the nation. You know, and that, that's, that, that's a, a fundamental of democracy. And the problem is that ALBA as a party, its purpose is to prevent the parliament reflecting the political complexion of the nation. Its purpose is to game the system. Its purpose, its aim is disproportional representation. Its, its, its function is to underrepresent unionist voters. That's, that's what the plan is meant to, to bring about. You know, its goal is a, a supermajority of MSPs that does not reflect a supermajority of voters. Um, you know, so its, it's purpose is to subvert democ democracy in that sense. So what do we do about this? I, I think it's important we go back to basics. And I know pollsters sometimes ask this question and I wonder if it, if it should be asked more. And we should, I think we, we need to almost put the electoral system aside for a moment and ask people, what is your primary political allegiance? You know, who, are you a Labour man or a Tory man or, you know, or are you an SNP woman or an Alba woman? You know, or, you know, what, you know what, what are your politics basically? You know, what, what is your, what, what, what do you bring to an election? And we need to take that, the result of that question and compare it to what we end up with in the, in the Holyrood Parliament. And if the two don't match, we've got a problem. Um, and I, I, I just, I, I, you know, I think we have to also recognise that twice in the past, Holyrood, the electoral system has failed this basic democratic test. You know, first in 2011, when the SNP won a, a parliamentary majority um, on a minority of vote. And secondly, in 2016, when Labour fell behind the Tories in, the par in parliamentary representation. 
despite doing better than the Tories in the constituency vote, which is mm -hmm. a fact that is often forgotten and ignored. You know, and what, what, why Labour fell behind the Tories in that election was because I suspect, and John may correct me on this, but I suspect a, a chunk of the Labour vote then went to the Greens when they came to the, to the, the, the peachy coloured um, ballot paper for the lists. Um, so the question then becomes, what can you do about this? And it's, it's usually the case that governments are not very keen on reforming the uh, electoral system. You know, and, the, and the reason for that should be, some, should be obvious. It's quite simple. Governments, by definition, have been the beneficiaries of the electoral system. You know, that's, what, that's, why, they're, that's why they're governments. But I think the, the, the scenario here is slightly different because we have an insurgent party that seeks to cause a whole lot of trouble for the governing party by subverting the system. So I think perhaps uniquely, um, there's an incentive for the ruling party to change the system under which it became the ruling party. I think that, that's quite rare in politics, but here I think it applies. Paula, you're muted. I'm muted. I've got my finger on the button, I just haven't pressed it. Um, <laughs> so I'm going to pick up some of those themes, um, I suspect, with Nicola. Um, so we've had, we're talking about the kind of how, how representative the parliament is. And also this kind of ongoing argument that, you know, a call for a second referendum is undeniable in the face of an SNP majority. But are there other outcomes, including perhaps this supermajority, that make, that, that strengthen or weaken um, that particular argument? And if I can follow that up as well with another question um, that particularly intrigues me in this is that, would a support for a majority would, would majority support for a referendum so a majority for the SNP necessarily translate into majority support for independence at that referendum um, thanks thanks Paula um, for coming along and, and uh, for inviting me to come along and join the panel um, first of all I think on the on the, the supermajority question I mean, there's nothing in the opinion polls that we have at the moment that suggests that the supermajority of Alex Salmon's dreams is is about to happen um, so that's one thing second thing is that um while accepting some of the points that kenny was making around the electoral system it's important to also note that if um the scottish parliament's electoral system was the same one that is used uh, to elect the house of commons then it's quite clear uh, that the snp would have a super majority all by itself because that system is uh, tends to be disproportionate in a winner-takes-all type of scenario. Um, but that's not the system that we have. Uh, the system that we have is a mixed-member proportional system, not perfect, no electoral system is perfect, uh, but it has that element of proportionality and that makes it quite difficult uh, for any one party uh, to secure uh, a, a majority all by itself. Um, it may happen, it's happened in 2011, it may happen again, we'll just have to wait and see but it's really difficult to do that in um, a five plus party system but for the purposes of your question let's imagine that is what happens and the SNP wins a majority uh, by itself 
does that make the case for an independence referendum undeniable? Um, the short answer is no. Um, and I think maybe it's helpful to separate out the legal issues from the political issues here. Legally, and um, we need to go back to um, the Scotland Act 1998, which is the, the, the Act of Parliament that founded uh, the Scottish Parliament. It's where the powers um, of the Parliament, what it can do and what it can't do, um, are set out. And in that Act, uh, the power, lawmaking powers over the Constitution, including the Union and anything to affect change to the Union, um, are matters for the UK Parliament. These are part of the lawmaking powers of the UK Parliament not the lawmaking powers of the Scottish Parliament. And so for the Scottish Parliament to be able to have a referendum, to be able to run a referendum, to legislate for a referendum, it would need, as happened in 2014, a transfer of power from Westminster to the Scottish Parliament. And that's, people probably heard of this idea of a Section 30 order. That's the device that would enable that um, to happen. Of course, there is an alternative. The UK Parliament could use its own lawmaking powers uh, to legislate for a referendum, but I don't suppose that would go down too well um, um, among um, certain parts of, of Scotland anyway. But legally, there is nothing that Boris Johnson has to do when faced with an SNP majority. He is under no legal obligation to respond to that. So that's when we come to the politics. And it's difficult to predict um, how the Prime Minister will respond. Um, and it's not just about the Prime Minister. I think there would be certain pressure on the Labour Party and Keir Starmer also. Um, but I, my hunch is that it is more difficult for them to do nothing or to have no response or to ignore the result if the SNP is to secure an overall parliamentary majority. It perhaps becomes a little bit easier uh, for them to resist that pressure if the SNP falls short of a parliamentary majority. There probably would still be a pro-independence majority in the parliament, um, particularly um, bringing the Greens into account here. The Scottish Green Party is a pro-independence party and there may or may not be additional pro-independence um, politicians if Alapa is uh, successful. Um, but I think that makes it a little bit politically easier, given the political culture, the mindset that dominates Westminster politics, that idea of a winner takes all um, producing a mandate um, is quite a powerful one, um, I think. And it would be difficult, I think, for um, Boris Johnson to, um, having won his own majority um, with a mandate to get Brexit done and seeing that as a, as a, as a platform to proceed very quickly, um, with um, his Brexit deal, it would be difficult for him to ignore um, the, the similar pressures and demands uh, from Scotland, not least because it does raise questions then about, well, if a majority is not the route to an independence referendum, what is? What is the democratic path? Um, and there might be domestic politics uh, that come into play, but there's also an international reputation uh, that the UK has overseas about uh, its own democratic practices and values um, to consider um, as well. Um, 
But what if they don't have that majority and what if then the pressure is eased and they continue to resist? Well, the issue doesn't go away. The issues are still here. They've been here for a long time. This is, um, as John and Elsa were, were pointing to, th this is the issue that divides Scotland. If you look at the manifestos um, for the elections, there's actually a lot of consensus across the board on all sorts of other issues. This is the one issue that divides Scotland, and I think it will continue to do so, in which case I think all eyes then um, look towards the next UK general election, um, which might come around sooner than we think. Um, and the SNP, if it is able to maintain the kind of support levels that it has right now, would become and uh, would remain would be a powerful force within the UK Parliament and much more difficult uh, to ignore um, in that context. Um, on the question about um, your your question, Paula, about if there is support, well, we don't we don't know exactly um, why people would vote for the SNP if they were to win a majority. It's, um, what is undeniable is that the independence issue is much more to the fore in this campaign uh, than it has been in previous Scottish Parliament campaigns. Um, we'll know from Ailsa's election survey um, why people voted the way they did, but we'll have to wait for that um, a, a bit. But does that mean that they would then vote yes to independence? No, of course not. And I think um, there are very difficult issues to confront in an independence referendum campaign. Brexit may have created the political conditions that helped to um, legitimise the case for returning to an independence referendum soon, but it's also made independence more complex, um, not least because of the issues around the border between Scotland and England, and which in the context of independence in the EU would become a land border between the European Union and the United Kingdom. And that raises some difficult issues um, that the SNP would have to address, I think, if it was to hope to win um, that independence referendum. Thanks, Nicola. I don't know if you're watching the Slido as well. You seem to be answering the questions as they're coming in there. <laughs> it's just some kind of intuition about what people might want to ask. There's a question here which I think picks up um, some of the themes that you've all been talking about. I'm going to ask it to Elsa first, but everybody else, please do kind of chip in um, afterwards if you've got things to add. So Elsa, Jill Rutter asks, does the constant focus on independence in Scottish domestic elections mean that the normal accountability mechanisms um, for performance in government don't operate or perhaps don't operate in quite the same way? So you were talking about competence um, and Nicola was talking about the kind of agreement across a whole bunch of other issues. So I wonder if it is that focus on independence that undermines some of those other factors. You're on mute, Elsa. <laughs> Just to understand, um, I, I will answer it as if the question is getting at, um, does focusing on independence take away from voting decisions that are based more in terms of attribution of responsibility for policy success and failure? Is that kind of the, is that the, is that, am I reading that right? I, I'm not reframing the question so much as making sure I understand the question. That's, that's um, how we read it. <laughs> 
Yeah. So, I mean, I, I think I kind of questioned partly the premise of the question. So I, I don't think there's a constant focus on, on independence. In fact, in some elections, you know, if you're thinking across both Hollywood and Westminster elections, in, in some elections, the SNP has been actually quite quiet about, about independence. Um, and it's been opposition parties, um, in particular the Conservative Party, that has been keen to keen to talk uh, talk about it. But I also think that there have been loads of examples when parties not in government have sought to make a central plank of their campaigns um, policy failures on the part of the policy in government, and sometimes not even in the appropriate territorial domain where the election takes place. So what I mean by that is sometimes in Westminster elections, you have parties criticizing the SNP's handling of education, even though education is a devolved competence and it's something that is relevant, should be relevant for a Westminster election um, rather than rather than a Westminster election. So I don't I don't think it gets in the way, in part because I don't think it's a constant focus on on independence. And I also don't think we have evidence that suggests that attributions of blame and responsibility are absent from from the framing around elections. And I also think that we, do, we don't really have evidence that voters aren't themselves taking those things into consideration. Um, that aside, it is quite remarkable to have a government in power this long and still perceived to be the most competent party across every single policy domain. And the, the, the surprising one, I think, is, is, is education there because we have... Um, we have external measures of, of, it, of it, Scott, the, the performance of the system. Um, those, those ratings have been decreasing. Certainly opposition parties have not been silent on this. We had the recent um, issue of the exams um, fiasco in, in, terms of, in terms of lockdown. So there's objective evidence for why we might be surprised by the fact that the SNP is still perceived to be the most competent party. But I don't think that's because voters aren't thinking about domestic policy. I think it's because they genuinely don't believe that the other parties could do a better job. And I don't think that's because the independence is knocking things off, um, knocking things off the table. I think they're separate evaluations. John, did you want to? Yeah, I mean, there is a difficulty for the opposition parties in trying to make accountability a central issue in this election. And it is the pandemic. Um, the truth is, I think, in a sense, what's happened is that really anything that happened in Scotland before March of last year has been pretty much been erased from the political slate. Because all the opposition parties can do is to say, well, before the pandemic, NHS waiting lists were already too high. OK, fine. But yeah, everybody now knows that waiting lists are far too high because of the pandemic. Equally, you can say, well, um, yes, the educational attainment gap wasn't being closed as much as you claimed it would be before the pandemic. But then everybody accepts that the pandemic is probably widely educated, the educational attainment gap anyway. So you're having to try to invite voters to go back to the world before COVID. And that's now, frankly, probably for many voters in the dim and distant past. Um, so I think you know, that's one of the reasons why um, I think accountability is perhaps more, much more difficult 
for the uh, opposition parties to pin on the SNP. Because we know before, before the pandemic, you could see how gradually uh, some of the evaluations of the SNP on some of these things were, 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 were proving to be less favourable. The other thing I would say, I mean, Elsa is right that, you know, Scottish parliamentary elections have never simply been about independence. And I, and I don't know what she's getting out of the Scottish election study, but the commercial polling is telling us that the constitutional issue is really dividing the electorate to a much greater extent than it has done in the past. We're looking at uh, the moment, uh, the polls saying about 87% of those people who are currently in favour of independence saying they're going to vote for the SNP and only about 8% of those who are on the opposite side. Now, even if you go back to 2016, let alone 2011, you had a non-trivial minority of uh, anti-independence people voting for the SNP. And certainly the reason why the SNP got a majority in 2011 had absolutely nothing out at all with people's attitudes towards the constitutional question and everything to do with the perceived competence of the, of the SNP. But I think Scottish politics have moved on. And, you know, the constitution, I mean, in a whole variety of ways, because of Brexit, uh, et cetera, and also because of the legacy of the 2014 referendum, the, the constitutional question is now much more polarised. It's now no longer also just about independence, it's about other things, all of which have got interlaid over each other. And that therefore, to that extent, at least, it just has become a really sharp fault line. And therefore, at the end of the day, well, you know, if you're not entirely sure that Nicola's done the world's most important, uh, brilliant job on, on the educational attainment gap, but in the end, you want independence at the moment, at least, and what I can see in the data, they're basically saying, I'm going to vote for the SNP. Um, and there is very, very little crossover from the uh, people voting on the opposite side. So and to that extent, I mean, you know, one has to keep on saying to people, you know, it, it, it makes this election different, right? It makes... Um, you know, we shouldn't assume that this election is like its predecessors. The, pre the last Scottish Parliament election occurred in cephalogical prehistory. It happened before the EU referendum, right? Anything before the EU referendum is now a world away. Um, so, uh, I, you know, I, I, so the, the character of the support for the parties has changed. The debates moved on. The character for support for independence has changed. The level of support for independence is higher. All of these things means that we are operating... Um, in a different world. Um, but it does also mean, of course, that in a sense, because it's looking like a quasi-referendum, the outcome perhaps will give us quite a good idea as to where we're actually at and we can stop relying on opinion polls to um, work out what the hell's going on. Thank you, John. Kenny, you wanted to come in on this question as well, I think. Yeah, I, I think like um, Elsa, I would question the assumption that lies behind the, the question, you know, it, it isn't for us, it isn't for anybody to say what people should care about when they walk into a polling booth. You know, people can vote for whatever reason they want to vote. They can, and if they want the, the election to be about independence, they'll make it about independence. If they want a general election, UK, a general election to be about the character and personality of Boris Johnson, that's what they'll vote about. And they're quite, it's quite a legitimate thing to do and you know we, we shouldn't say that that, that people uh, must always vote according to a certain um, approach. And I'm, I'm thinking there of the Labour Party in Scotland, who for the last decade have had this futile despair that the, the electorate 
wasn't voting about independent, wasn't voting about education, wasn't voting about poverty, wasn't voting about social justice. Entirely legitimate, but there's no point in blaming the voters for what the voters care about. You know, that's, that's, that's it's, first of all, it's politically mad because you have to actually be where the voters are before you can actually convince them about anything. But to stand on the sidelines and say, you know, you're, you're voting, you're voting for, not only are you voting for the wrong thing, you're voting for the wrong thing for the wrong reasons. It's not a good place for any political party to be. So, you know, I think we, 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 should, we should go a little bit easier on the voters. Thank you. Nicola, did you want to add anything on that question? Okay, I'm going to ask now what's the top question, but I'm not sure whether or not any of you are going to want to come in on it. So don't feel you have to. I'm going to ask it to all of you and whoever wants to take it um, can do so. So I'll read it as it is. To what extent has there been a rigorous economic analysis of the pros and cons of independence um, and how could Scotland return to the EU? So... Nicola, looks like yeah. Yeah, 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 sure. we'll go to Nicola first and then I'll come to John. So, I mean, there, I won't comment too much on the economic analysis question. There have been um, independent analyses. They don't all say the same thing. And that's often the case with economic analyses. But um, the, the, I mean, the economics of independence are trickier now, um, in part because of um, what we saw with Nursey Oil um, after the last independence referendum, but also... Um, obviously because of COVID, and that's been a difficult issue for all governments everywhere uh, to, to deal with. And that will, I think, um, shape the economic analyses and projections around the, the costs and benefits of independence. Um, and I think that will have to come um, along with analysis of other issues about what it would mean. Um, but the point about EU membership is interesting because that's um, in some ways easier to answer now because before in 2014 there was a debate about whether Scotland would be in or out or how, how it could get back in um, and now it's simple it's an accession process um, and so there would be a case um, to make to apply um, to rejoin the European Union and to meet um, the criteria of membership and that we would expect uh, would be uh, there's no queue um, there would be a process of negotiation and there would be an expectation um, on the part of um, whoever was negotiating on an independent Scotland's behalf um, to satisfy um, the, the uh, a key, uh, what's called the a key communautaire, the body of law um, that is already in place at the European Union level. And some of that is already on statute in Scotland anyway. Um, but some of it, uh, it will be beyond the, is, is beyond the competence of the devolved institutions. So um, it would be for, for um, the Scottish Parliament to make a commitment to sign up to all of that as well. And there would be difficult issues in that process to deal with. Uh, but it is a process that is set out uh, in the European Union treaties. Um, and it may be possible in the interim to have some sort of arrangements. I think there has been a shift of attitude within the European Union towards Scot Scotland and Scottish independence now compared to um, where we were in 2014. Um, I don't think that means that the European Union would interfere in the debate this side of a yes vote, um, but I expect there would be at least some within the EU institutions that would be sympathetic um, to Scotland's 
accession. Political difficulties, of course, would remain, um, not least from the Spanish and so on, but I think um, those can be overplayed. Um, but I think that element of it is, is at least in process terms, easier, but politically there would be issues to work through. Before I come to John, can I just ask a follow-up question on that, just to clarify something? So in that circumstance, would the um, independence movement in Scotland be taking the 2016 referendum result as a mandate for rejoining? Um, that's a good question. Um, I don't know is the answer to that. It would probably, they may try to take the case for independence that's set out in an independence referendum uh, as the mandate. So if that independence prospectus upon which they ask people for consent for independence has EU membership within it, then I think that would be uh, seen uh, to be the mandate. Um, but these are issues that would have to uh, come out in the wash, I think. Thanks. John, sorry. Uh, yeah, well, for what it's worth, when people are asked how, what they would, how they would vote if an independent Scotland were applying to join, the answer is they'd vote to apply to join. So uh, it's probably an academic question. I'll just make two uh, uh, points about the economics because I kind of heard the in the incredulity of how why could anybody be in favour of independence in, in the in the framing of the question. And I, I'll make two observations. One is that one of the things you have to realise again, you know, is that Brexit has changed the terms of the economic debate. And that while it's pretty clear that um, people in Scotland are more likely to be convinced by what we might call the democratic case for independence, i.e. we would be able to make our own decisions rather than being overturned by England, um, uh, they are more sympathetic to the economic case now than they were before 2014. And not least of the reasons of that is that whatever doubts they may or may not have about independence, uh, it's pretty clear that most people in Scotland, at least when we was last time, last researching this, think that Brexit is economically disadvantageous. The second comment I would make, and this really comes out of um, the polling that Lord Ashcroft released yesterday, which I thoroughly recommend. And I have to say that in lo looking at some of the responses to some of the economic questions on that, it reminded me very, very much of the pattern of attitudes towards Brexit across the UK as a whole prior to the EU referendum. So, okay, what you discover is, let's take, for example, I think one of the questions was about whether or not your standard living would increase or decrease. So you get more people saying that it would decrease than increase. And if you are a unionist, you will immediately see, so well, that goes to prove, therefore, that people don't believe the unionist case. Well, be careful, because what you will discover is that, yes, unionists think that it's going to be dis uh, going to reduce Scotland's standard of living. Supporters of independence say, won't make any difference. It'll be all right on the night, which, of course, was exactly the reaction of many a Leave voter before 2016. And the crucial thing to realise is that, yes, there may be more people who think that, at least according to Lord Ashcroft's data, other data doesn't show this, but according to Lord Ashcroft, even if you accept Lord Ashcroft's data, that perhaps there are more people who are doubtful about the economic consequences than are optimistic about it. The crucial thing you need to know is that the proportion of people who are, who are pessimistic about the economic consequences of Brexit is well below 50%. And remember that in a referendum, you need 50% of the vote to win. 
So when the Remain side were constantly pointing to the fact that more people uh, before 2016 felt said saying that you know economic disadvantages, some has replied, ah, but it's still only 40%. You need to persuade some of the people who don't necessarily think it will make much difference to vote with you. And of course, they in the end they didn't get enough of them. So um, just be aware, therefore, that a Brexit has changed the terms of the economic debate and as well as lots of other things that Nicola's quite rightly gone into. But secondly, also remember that perhaps in the end, the economic, uh, the, the way in which the economic case is now evaluated is not one that is as strong for the union as it was seven years ago. Can I can I just yeah. briefly jump in on that? I mean, my my only thing to add to these really comprehensive answers would be that from what we know of, of the voting in 2014, calculations of economic risk matter. So risk, general dispositions about risk mattered. Mm -hmm. And the more risk averse you were, the more likely you were to vote no. Within that, economic calculations about risk mattered. And even within that, we know that currency risk mattered. But the effect was not uniform. And it was strong for some people and absent for others. And the other thing is that there are some people for whom you can you can predict a, a, um, an economic hit, and that is not a kind of um, poison pill in terms of of independence. There are, there are voters for whom it is a price worth paying in order to have uh, in order to have your own state. We see that in in referendums in different independence. Um, we see that in the data about different independence referendums, for example, about Quebec, and it also mirrors people's understandings of Brexit, right? There, are, there, is, an there is an economic argument about the fact that actually, yeah, we're all going to take a hit about Brexit, but it's worth it in order to have your own say and to control your own destiny. And that view is present also within the Scottish electorate as well. We're going to take an economic hit, but it's worth it. And so I think these understandings of how how assessments of economic risk play out have to interact also with understandings of, of, of identity and, and voice. And there, the, the parallels with Brexit, I think, are, um, are, are instructive ones. And I'm afraid on that I'm going to have to go. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to leave you to tell, you know, to argue about whether I was right or wrong. Thank you so much for joining us, Elsa. Thank you. I'm just going to come back to Nicola because I think you wanted to add something to this. Yeah, just briefly in a, in a Compliments um, what Elsa was just saying there. The narrative around this has changed now too. So you won't hear Nicola Sturgeon saying that the economic case for independence is an easy one. Um, so she's framed it in a different way. And I think the challenge and the opportunity, I suppose, for independence advocates is to say, yes, it will be difficult, but that's temporary and we've got a plan. And you know, we, we will, in, you know, after a short amount of time, this will be advantageous for you. And complementing that with the democratic case that is at the core um, of all of this is, I think, is an opportunity uh, for them. Kenny, can I just come to you with this question as well? Yeah, it's really just pick up on something that, that Nicola was saying there. And it's um, a memory I had from the 2014 referendum. And I remember speaking to one of the strategists um, at quite a tense moment in the campaign and I said what what would what would you fear most uh, at this point and he said to me he said the thing I, I am dreading is if Alex Salmon stands up and says independence would be really difficult 
it would be hard, it would be a slog, but it would be worth it. <laughs> um, and because they had no answer to that. You know, I, they had no answer to an honest admission that this, this was actually going to be really, really hard. But, you know, if we dug down, if we're, you know, we are, we are people who are used to struggle, we'll have to struggle for everything. You know, we'll struggle for this and we'll get through. You know, that, that was a message which they had no comeback on. And I think it's still a message they have no comeback on. And um, I, I ha like Nicola, I did pick up on what uh, Nicola Sturgeon had, 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 had the, the tone of our responses on that has changed. And I think they've learned that lesson. And it's a very hard one for unionism to counter. That is a brilliant segue into the next question I was going to ask. Um, I'm not sure quite how to frame the question um, because the, the, the question as it's posed, although very popular, is a little bit vague on the end. So the, the question is about unionism being devoid of ideas um, and really <laughs> reliant only on presenting an anti-SMP, anti-nationalism message. Um, so I don't know if any of you want to come in on that. It seems to pick up very strongly with the, you know, it'd be hard, but it's worth it. So maybe if I come back to Kenny first and then come to you, John. Okay. Yeah, I mean, the, the, um, the unionism being bereft of ideas. Um, it would help if there was an understanding of what unionism should be focusing on. And, you know, to great, there's been a lot of amusement and despair within Scottish unionist parties looking at how the UK government is currently trying to parlay this question. And this bizarre thing it always keeps coming back to is that the answer is to put a union jack on everything, you know, and to make people feel more British. And, and you know, Tony Blair, a man who's, who's, whose judgment I respect and all these things, was talking yesterday about the fact that, you know, that we hadn't inculcated a sense of British pride to the extent that was necessary to keep everything cohesive. And, you know, from, from this point, I, I voted no, um, although I, I tend not to call myself a unionist. Um, I am pro-UK in, in, in a general sense. But, you know, it's all about, it's not about Britishness. It's about how I see myself as a Scot. Am I the kind of Scot that wants to, that prioritises solidarity and, you know, cooperation with a, within a union? Or am I the kind of Scot who wants to go alone with a separate sovereign state? And, you know, the, 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 that's how the debate is framed when people talk to each other in Scotland. But there's a, there's a whole kind of layer of assumptions about what unionism is coming from people who have a London-centric view of what union is and have a British-centric view of what unionism is. We should be relying, and I know this was the priority of the, the people um, on the Better Together campaign in 2014, who were far more focused on what kind of Scot do you want to be? And in this, in this yes, no question, what does it say about the kind of Scot you are? Thank you, John. <laughs> um, you. Yeah, I mean, I think that this is an important question. Um, you know, one of the reasons why um, perhaps Boris Johnson doesn't want to referendum is mean, you know, ask yourself the question, who would lead the unionist side in a referendum? Would the parties manage to agree as to what referendum campaign should be fought? Um, I'll leave you to think of the answers. Um, but there is a wider point here. Um, 
And, and in some ways, I like to draw a parallel between, again, it's, you know, Brexit's just so instructive and the comparison between Scotland and Brexit, again, is often instructive. Um, you know, if you go back to the 2014 um, independence referendum, first of all, you know, I mean, perfectly clear that one of the strategic weaknesses of the unionist side was, you know, at the end of the day, all, all that Conservative and Labour can agree on is they don't like independence, right? Um, what they uh, do not agree on is how the United Kingdom should be run, and therefore they cannot come up with an agreed positive picture about how Scotland might be run within the framework of the union in such a way that the place prospers, all right? And it could even be done quite narrow things. I mean, I mean I'm sure none of you had the sense to be watching this, but I remember having great fun. I I've forgotten whether it was the Cowdenbeath or the Dunfermline by-election, but there was one of those by-elections just before the 2014 independence referendum. And it was about one o'clock in the morning and the result was taking a long time. And this was way, way before anybody was thinking about Smith Commission. And, um, you know, I was aware at this point in time that, you know, all three of the uh, political parties were coming up with plans as to how Scotland should be governed after the, re after the referendum. Um, so I had great fun saying to them, well, saying, well look, you know, are you three guys going to get together? I mean, are you going to get together and agree as to what, you know, what the, what the plan And it was perfectly clear. I mean, this was, you know, uh, some weeks before that they did not were going to do so. And it was also perfectly clear that they were planning on positioning themselves in order to be the ones who would be able to win the spoils of the unionist victory. All right. Then, of course, a certain YouGov poll and Gordon Brown banged heads together and we had the Smith Commission. Um, but it, that illustrated the extent to which, you know, uh, uh, even before 2014, there was frag serious fragmentation on the union side. Now, back to Brexit. How, why was Boris Johnson able to get the UK out of the European Union? He got the UK out of the European Union because he pulled the bull by the horns, came up with a deal, which was obviously somewhat specious, and was willing to campaign for it and to take the potential hit in terms of the loss of Remain voters. He gets four-fifths of Leave voters to vote for him in the 2019 election and the rest of history. What happened on the Remain side? Well, the only thing they could agree on was they didn't want to leave the European Union without a deal, right? Much as the only thing that Tory and Labour can agree on north of the border is they don't want us to leave the United Kingdom. But thereafter, were they in favour of Norway plus, Norway minus, Switzerland, uh, Norway something else, um, another referendum, another referendum with, with, with a recommendation to vote against Brexit or what, they could never ever agree. The vote remained fragmented. So even though it's probably undoubtedly true that by the time we left the European Union, there was actually a majority in favor of staying, the rest is history. So, you know, and of course the fascinating thing about this is that in, for Brexit, the fact that um, the unionist, uh, the, the Leave side was uh, united, gave Boris a strategic advantage, but now he's on the wrong side. He's in a movement that's got a strategic disadvantage so long as, and this comes back to Kenny's uh, contribution much earlier, you know, insofar as the nationalist movement were to begin to fragment in the wake of Alex Salmon's intervention, then one of its major strategic advantages will be diminished. The fact that it's cohered behind a party that has a vision of independence gives the independence movement, in my view, a major strategic advantage, which has been threatened in recent months. And 
perhaps therefore, you know, whether or not Alba does or does not succeed will be pretty important for that story. Can I come in, Paula? Yes. So, I mean, picking up a couple of these things, um, the, the vision of unionism that Kenny was um, referring to there is one that um, has been very powerful and most strongly associated with the Labour Party. And we saw that um, in the 2014 referendum um, campaign. There are two issues with that now. So one is that the Labour Party in Scotland is a shadow of its former self and it's difficult to see that changing dramatically in, in the, the next few years. But the other and perhaps more important uh, aspect is that um, the UK government of Boris Johnson is taking a different approach to devolution. So sometimes it's referred to as muscular unionism. It's not a term I particularly like, uh, but there is a centralizing unionism at the heart of this administration. And that is um, raising some questions. It's a little bit subtle at the moment, but there are implications for, for the devolution settlement, for the authority of the devolved institutions within the United Kingdom, most obviously so bound up with recent legislation uh, that was passed um, called the UK Internal Market Act, which does affect the authority of the devolved institutions. And there's a few other things as well around regional aid. So there does seem to be a shift. It's not just about the flags. And I agree with uh, Kenny's points about the, the, the use of Union Jacks and wrapping everything in a Union Jacket likely to appeal to your very core support but it's not likely to appeal to a broader support uh, within Scotland or have the desired effect um, but if there is also um, measures that are partly about discourse but also partly about power that are seen to undermine devolution and undermine the status of the Scottish Parliament within the United Kingdom, then that risks not only alienating those who already favour independence, but it risks alienating the very much larger majority um, who had endorsed in a referendum way back in 1997, um, the Scottish Parliament as an institution. And there is quite strong attachment to the devolved institutions uh, within Scotland. So I think the union strategy, the centralising union strategy that we are seeing uh, from the Johnson administration, apparently in response to the threat of independence, is far more likely to do harm uh, to the union cause than it is to protect and defend it. Thank you. Um, we haven't got very much time left and some of the questions that are at the top of the list now, I think would take far more time <laughs> than we can possibly give them. So I'm going to ask some of the um, perhaps not simple questions, but slightly more straightforward questions. So the top question at the moment is about how Scotland would deal with a hard border with England. And I don't think it would be fair to ask any of you to deal with that in a minute. <laughs> so instead, I'm going to ask you to deal with in a minute whether or not the SNP have missed an opportunity by not having some kind of electoral pact with the Greens. Um, whether there should have been a kind of unite for independence in parallel to unite to remain. Uh, Kenny, should I come to you? 
perfect timing because I wrote about this in my column in the Times yesterday. So I, I'm I'm um, unusually well briefed on this subject, um, which makes a change. Um, no, the the um, I think I think a pact going into the election would have been um, unnecessarily uh, uh, distracting um, for supporters of both sides. And um, I think there is an issue about whether or not they, if if the SNP uh, come out of this with um, a minority of votes and a minority of members of parliament, whether they should consider a coalition government with the, the Greens. Um, you know, we've, we've seen coalitions in Scotland before. We had them for the first two terms of a Scottish parliament between Labour and the Lib Dems. Um, the, uh, um, the SNP in 2007 then decided to go alone as a minority government. Then it had a majority government after 2011, um, and Nicola Sturgeon made the decision in 2016 to carry on as a as a to go uh, to go back to the idea of a minority government. Now, I think it does. There is a logic that says, you know, um, an SNP Green coalition, especially in the year of COP26 coming to Glasgow, would have a would send a message about the autonomy and difference of Scottish politics and the more European kind of sense of Scottish politics but, uh, compared to being uh, uh, compared to British politics, it would, it would, it would, the, the tone would be different. And also uh, I wonder whether or not a majority, a government with a, with a pro-independence majority would be, would have more legitimacy on the independence question than a minority government with green support. So I wonder if, if, if that has, a, that has a, a kind of moral power and perhaps even a legal power if we ever get to um, a legal tussle over the independence referendum. Thank you. John, should I come to you next? On no, that? no, Kenny gave, a, I think, a brilliant answer. So let's move on to another question. Move on to another question. Um, that's, I've closed my question window down because I thought you were all going to take that, take that one and run with it. So again, um, we haven't got very much time, so I'll throw this question because I think everybody actually wants to know. When will we know? When are we expecting the results to come in from Scotland? Do we all need to stay up overnight next Thursday? Do I need to buy extra jammy dodgers to keep me awake over the <laughs> over that night? No, no, no I, I, I'll happily deal with that. Yeah, the answer is that we may not know the result until uh, Saturday afternoon, stroke Saturday evening after the election. There is no overnight count. Uh, the half the constitu half the constituencies for both the constituency vote and the list vote will be counted on Friday. The other half will be counted on Saturday. This is all because of the social distancing measures that are required, uh, given the current state of the pandemic. Um, uh, uh, now, uh, so therefore, um, you won't know the final result until late Saturday afternoon. What is true is that. Uh, I and my cephalological colleagues will be taking the results as they come in, both the list vote at constituency level as well as the constituency vote, and looking to see whether or not we can project in any way. I, the only thing I would say to you is that the BBC is a very conservative institution and will only really allow us to project it when it's pretty darned obvious that that's what's going to be. So the advice is, I'm afraid you may just have to... Um, uh, read between the lines of what is said sometimes on air to get a sense of where it appears to be going. Uh, now, you know, I mean, if it's... Give us some hand signals, John. 
Uh, yeah, I mean, if it, if it, when if, they come to you on your balcony, can you signal to us what you, where uh, you think? There's no, going? there's no balcony because of COVID, but that's another story. Um, <laughs> so, uh, but but the the, 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 the you, I mean, you know, if it's very clear that in one way or another, as a result of the half that gets counted on Saturday, then it, you know, we'll say so. But I suspect that's unlikely. So it, it's a long wait, um, but at least you don't have to stay up overnight. And no exit poll. I oh, no, no. There never has been an exit poll for Scottish Parliament elections, and there is. I mean, whether or not any hedge fund thinks it's worth its while, I, I don't know. But actually, one or two um, folk I've spoke to in the city, they, they actually seem to be fairly relaxed about this. And um, at the moment, I think overseas journalists are more excited by the possible outcome than folk in the city who seem to have decided that even if uh, an independence referendum is going to happen, it's going to happen so far down the track that they don't have to worry about it. I think maybe just going back to where we started at the very beginning, where Kenny started in particular in the electoral system, it's worth um, reminding people that we won't know how the distribution of seats in the regional um, section, in the regional list section, um, shapes up until all of the constituency votes have been counted. And it's that element that uh, will determine the overall uh, distribution of seats within the parliament and in this election it could come down to the final allocation of seats and it's yeah. very difficult to to predict that yeah. um well too far in advance maybe i'm sounding too conservative like the bbc here <laughs> thank you all we are bang on time finishing there were a couple of questions in the chat about having a broader conversation about the constitution including um Kind of wider wider questions about the English Constitution. All I can all I can do for that is to flag the UK in a changing Europe are having a whole week of events from the seventeenth of May on the future of British politics, which will include much more of this discussion, I'm sure, but also touch on those issues. And finally, to thank all the panelists, including Elsa, who's who already had to leave us for a fascinating discussion. The audience for fascinating questions. I've got a whole page of questions here that I prepared that I didn't get to ask. So maybe I'll have to tweet those out and get you to answer them that way. Thank you all very, very much um, for being here.